at dawn on June 6, 1944, nearly 7,000 British and U.S. ships carrying close to 160,000 troops invaded Normandy in what was codenamed Operation Overlord, forever referred to as D-Day. Now, thankfully for the Allies, this merger was successful in the fight to regain a foothold in the mainlands of Europe on the way to defeating the Axis in World War II. Another merger occurred less than two months earlier in a last-ditch Hail Mary effort to save the NFL. The Chicago Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers would merge to become the Card Pits. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is June 4th, 1944, and it is 4.15 a.m. inside the Southwick House in Portsmouth, England. Now we're here because we are witnessing quite possibly the most important weather forecast and decision in human history. The original invasion date was scheduled for June 5th, but Captain James Stagg strongly urged to delay with the worry of rough seas looming. The Nazis sure were a perilous foe, but leaving this military to the mercy of the seas in the English Channel could have tipped the scales in favor of the Axis winning World War II. Nonetheless, The invasion was delayed by 24 hours, ultimately proving to be the right call. Now, just months earlier, a call was made in the NFL to keep the league from perishing. The Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Cardinals would join forces to become the card pits for the 1944 season. Now, it did not turn out too well for the card pits in that 1944 season. In fact, it could have possibly been called a shamble of epic proportions. But that would have been so the case if it was decided to invade on the original date of June 5th. And this happens to be the time and the period where we left off our interview with Joe Ziemba, one of the world's most knowledgeable individuals on the early history of the Chicago Cardinals. Yes, the Chicago Cardinals. The Arizona Cardinals are the oldest franchise in the NFL. But they did not hail from Arizona, nor St. Louis. It was Chicago. But before then... There was earlier history, and we talked about that in the last week's episode. So if you have not listened to the first part of this interview, I highly recommend that you mash that pause button, flip on back to episode one, because this is a timeline of the Chicago Cardinals. And you can get there by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com slash Joe Ziemba, which is Joe Z-I-E-M-B-A, or you can just go ahead and hit it up on your podcast player choice. And while you're at it, I ask that you please mash that little subscribe button. That way you get the hottest, freshest off the press episodes well each and every week. But enough of me rambling on. Enough of this anticipation. Let's get back in the heart and thick of things with the interview with Mr. Joe Ziamba. I think probably made the stadium look bigger. When they're up at Wrigley Field, their fans uh, felt really betrayed. And said, "Why should why should they why should we go up to the north side?" In fact, uh, I think it was Vince Bononis, one of the linemen for the Cardinals, said uh, at the time that 
you know, we moved up to, to Wrigley Field, but uh, rich people up there didn't want to come see us, and our fans didn't want to come up to see us, so we were left with a lot of empty seats. And to which the fans then that were loyal were, were anxious to see the Cardinals play and amuse themselves by trying to irritate the other players or <laughs> setting fire to the bleachers. Oh, man. Fun-loving kids back then. Wow, yeah. And it's not like they had TV or anything like that in the 20s and 30s where they could just watch it from at home. I mean, it was Correct. either go to the game or not. Yes, yes. Was it the Chicago Cardinals and the Bears that played during the time of when the Pearl Harbor attacks happened, or was it a different teams that played? No, they were actually playing at Wrigley Field, I believe, that day. December 7th, 1941, and the players said that they learned about it at halftime, um, but there were announcements made that, you know, such and such, uh, lieutenant, please report to your base, or colonel, call your officers, etc. They had some kind of hint something was going on, but yeah, it was during that game with the Bears and the Cardinals. Of course, then after the game, uh, they heard all about it, but uh, they did finish the, finish the contest that day on December 7th. Yeah, and then the following week, uh, was it the Bears that they played a championship game, the or a playoff game the following week, didn't they? I believe they did. Yes, yes. Yeah, they continued their schedule. They again still didn't know much about what was going on, but uh, both the Bears and the Cardinals contributed greatly in terms of uh, players that uh, went into the service. It was difficult for the NFL to succeed or even be uh, competitive during that time, and. There were just so many players that were in the service. So by 1944, the Bears and the Cardinals uh, offered to combine, but the NFL turned them down, figuring it would be too powerful a team. Instead, the Cardinals and Pittsburgh combined. And it was, as uh, I think the owner, Mr. Rooney of the Steelers said, this is the worst football team of all time. They lost all their games, and they were called the Card after the Cardinals and Pitts after Pittsburgh. And so the card pits eventually evolved into what the fans would call the carpets. And why not? Just like a carpet we walk on, the teams are walking all over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the combined team of the Cardinals and the Steelers. Yeah. I mean, uh, you got to figure back in the day with World War II, there were more important things going on, everybody going to war. And we were lucky that the NFL even survived that time period. Yeah, we certainly were. And that the league survived and was able to continue until everybody came back. And of course that really, I think added a lot to the league. They had all these players coming back from service. They had stockpiled draft choices uh, of what they could get from players from the colleges. And the players were older. They weren't green 21 year olds coming out of college. These were battle tested veterans in their mid to late late twenties coming out to, to become part of the football team. And so it uh, really added to the popularity. That's when I kind of noticed that the attendance really picked up, especially between the Cardinals and the Bears games, where you'd have forty to 50,000 at the games, where before you would just have a few thousand before the war. You mean even during the war there was the forty to 50,000 fans or after? Yeah, after the war. I'm sorry, yeah. During the war, there's other things going on and rationing and everything with the money, but why do you think all of a sudden after the war it just kind of the attendance spiked? I think the fans had the opportunity to see some real superstars. An example would be Charlie Trippy of the Cardinals. He was the first bonus baby. He was signed for $100,000 back when 
people are still getting a couple hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars a season to play football. And he had served, he had gone to the University of Georgia. He had played in, uh, I think he played five all-star games, not only at Georgia, but in the service. And then when he was with the Cardinals, they played in the all-star game. So you had a lot of these guys, uh, Bullet Bill Dudley was also in the service, uh, George Hallis, not a player by then, of course, but uh, people that had been in the war, now you had almost uh, uh, several super teams where big names that people had heard about were finally going to be on that field right in front of them. And so the league became very in- incredibly uh, competitive by that time, where uh, especially with draft choices being added and just had their pick of the talent uh, of soldiers coming back and, and rookies that had been drafted. So I think it was a real bonus for the fans. And a good example of that is a college all-star game, which was started back in about 1934 or so by Arch Ward, who was the editor of the Chicago Tribune. He is also the gentleman who started the baseball all-star game. But he had this idea to, oh, put the best players from the graduating class of seniors against the defending champions of the National Football League. And they would meet in what would be the first exhibition game the following year, the following summer, generally in late August. And when the Cardinals played the All-Stars in 1948, there was 101,000 people at Soldier Field in Chicago. So this was really showing that people wanted to see professional football, that caliber of play, whereas before they had been hesitant, being content to see the college players when they were still there. So I think uh, after the war, People had a little more money. People were working, and all the fans wanted to see the big stars back on the gridiron. Yeah, you mentioned that they played the College All-Stars in 1948. That was because they were the champions the previous year, right? The last time they were the champions? That's right, and and they won the championship in 1947. Current Chicago fans now know that uh, since the Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 2016, the team now known as the Arizona Cardinals is the one that's gone the longest in all professional sports without a championship. Since 1947 was the last championship for the team. But that season was uh, pretty interesting as well. It came down to the Bears against the Cardinals late in the season, and the winner would win the division and qualify for uh, to, be, to the championship game. But when the Bears and the Cardinals met, the uh, Cardinals came up with a trick play to start the game. There's a guy named uh, Babe Dementiev, uh, who was a quick receiver. And Jimmy Councilman, the head coach of the Cardinals, noted that because of his speed, the Bears usually would put a linebacker on him uh, or on that side of the field. So they would line, line Babe up on the right side. And uh, the plan was to let him streak down the field, and they'd hit him with a pass. The only problem was Babe's wife was in labor, giving birth that week. So he spent four days sleeping on a chair in a hospital, and they never got to to practice that play with him at practice. So he came out the day of the game, and on the chalkboard, they wrote it out, Jimmy Councilman and his assistants. And sure enough, uh, on the first play, they were able to complete that pass to Babe, and they gave them the lead over the Bears, and they went on to defeat the Bears and then met the Eagles at Frozen Comiskey Park for the NFL Championship uh, in December I think December 28th, 1947. Was that the game where uh, it was a big snowstorm, or am I thinking of a different Eagles championship game? Yeah, that was the following year, but in 47, the Cardinals and the Eagles, and in 48, both played for the championship. In 47, 
when they played at Comiskey Park, they noticed the field was frozen. The Cardinals had the uh, initiative or the good sense to change into gym shoes instead of spikes to get better traction. And uh, Elmer Ingsman and Charlie Trippi of the Cardinals each scored two touchdowns. The Cardinals were able to win by a, by a single score and defeat the Eagles. Uh, who at halftime changed the gym shoes, but by that time they were a little behind. So it was a, kind of a weather factor there. And the next year is when the Cardinals and Eagles played in Philadelphia, where a huge snowstorm hit during the night and went on through the day and uh, played in uh, really a blizzard conditions. In fact, a lot of people thought the game should have been called, but the Cardinal players I talked to at the time thought, no, it's football. We'll play whatever weather it is. And so they did. But unfortunately, there was a fumble by the Cardinals deep in their own end zone late in the game. And Steve Van Buren then on one of the first plays after the recovery, the fumble went in. So the Eagles won 7-0. I thought that perhaps this was the best Cardinals team in history during the regular season. They were 11-1. and they, they had their dream backfield. They had great quarterbacks. And a good line, uh, and that snowstorm kind of derailed them. There was kind of a funny story right before then, though, was with uh, Chet Bolger, a tackle for the Cardinals, who was telling me that the day before was actually quite pleasant. And the players at the time got $2 a day in meal money. So he and his roommate, whoever it was at that time, combined their $2, and they got $4. And they went down, and they bought a bag of sliders. I'm not sure what sliders meant then, but right now it's not the best of health foods. <laughs> right. They bought a bag of sliders, and they each bought a quart of buttermilk. Again, something I hope never to drink, but uh, they were happy with that. And he said they got to their room, and they put their sliders and their buttermilk. They opened the window, put their feet up on the window ledge, and looked at each other and said, man, it doesn't get any better than this. Of course, <laughs> that was the $2-day meal money back in the 40s. Of course, the next day, the skies opened up and this horrendous blizzard hit, which uh, unfortunately knocked the Cardinals out of championship hopes. So if it would have been played the day before, you think that the Cardinals would have won? It might have been, yeah. I'd like to say personally, yes. Uh, The Eagles obviously had a great running attack with Steve Van Buren, a great quarterback, and Thompson. Uh, So both teams were were kind of uh, restrained in their offensive attack, but the Cardinals had so many great runners and uh, such a great line. I think they would have been very, very successful that day and likely would have won the championship. Yeah, you mentioned the Dream Backfield. What did that consist of or who did that consist of? The name of Dream Backfield came because this is the first time a professional team had four college All-Americans. And for the Cardinals, it was Paul Christman, a quarterback from Missouri, Elmer, excuse me, Pat Harder, the fullback from Wisconsin, Charlie Trippi, who we talked about from Georgia, and then Marshall Goldberg from the University of Pittsburgh. And later on, Goldberg switched to defense and became really one of the NFL's first defensive specialists, and he was replaced by Elmer Engsman uh, from the University of Notre Dame. So uh, it was called the million-dollar backfield or the dream backfield, but uh, these four very exquisite runners were now playing, all playing for the Cardinals at one time. Were they considered as popular as the Notre Dame Four Horsemen, or was the Four Horsemen probably more popular? I think the football lore or history, the Four Horsemen and Notre Dame probably were, because we didn't know much. We didn't see the Four Horsemen play. We know that they uh, came out of that darkened sky and the Four Horsemen that thundered by us. And, and I know they're still popular in trade shows. A few years ago, I tried to buy some Four Horsemen autograph, and they were 
I, I must have had to take a second mortgage to afford them. So they're still <laughs> popular. But but the Dream Backfield, I think, uh, probably not as well known. Uh, they were in Chicago probably at the time. And since then, as we've seen more and more players go into pro football that might have not have entered it in the 20s or 30s, we, we see the, the cream of the crop coming to the to the NFL teams. Yeah, and you mentioned, too, how you're coming from the thunder in the sky, and it just made me think about back with the, yeah, the 20s and the way that they wrote stories. It's just uh, I'm trying to think of the gentleman who wrote The Four Horsemen. He also talked about Red Grange and the Galloping Ghost. Oh, I think uh, it was Grantland Rice, can, I think. Thank you. Yes, that's the name. It's just the way that he wrote stories back then just depicted such a – I don't know, uh, uh, biblical proportions or that kind of thing. Just really unique. I like to see that type of storytelling come back into nowadays and maybe not just cinematic, but from the, you know, talking through the words to be able to make you devise the picture in your head. And something that I kind of found also, you mentioned an article, I don't remember what website it was, but there was a guy that went missing. His name was, I don't know if it, is it Johnny Gragas? Oh, right. Yes, yes. A Cardinals halfback. Oof. Yeah, he uh, kind of just decided to, to leave pro football and just left the team right in the middle of the championship chase. And I think he was even first or second in the NFL in rushing at the time. But uh, he later caught on with another team. But uh, he left a note from his roommate said, yeah, he's just tired of this. That was one of those things, too. Uh, the newspapers covered it, and everyone was questioning it. But you, you hit on a really good point about when we would see football or could have seen football for your fans, we had to base it on what was written about them or what we heard on the radio. And so your imagination does take off, and you're seeing these superstars out in the field in your head where nowadays we, we can see things for ourselves, and uh, the writer's role has changed a little a little bit. But uh, yeah, I agree. I would love to see some of that writing return with the descriptions of the the fastest man alive or how we've never seen a team as good as this or no one has ever done that to them or the longest kick ever made. The embellishments were hysterical. Right, yeah. I mean, it's nowadays, like you said, the role has been changed. They're not really telling you the story. They're just, this guy had this many yards. He scored a touchdown. Bilicek won again. <laughs> Carry on your day. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Belichick and the Patriots and a longstanding family, um, as far as the Patriots go with Kraft, the Bidwells. When when did that all come into play as part of owning, you know, buying the Chicago Cardinals? That began back in 1932. Chris O'Brien, as I mentioned, sold the team in 1925 to a gentleman named Dr. David Jones. He was the team physician for the city of Chicago and. The the price was $12,500, and I have a copy of that contract, which was handwritten, and the witness for that was a guy named George Hallis for some reason. So two or three years later, uh, Dr. Jones had done a lot of great things. Uh, he had promised uh, the Cardinals a winner. The South Side would have a winning team. He had a training camp set up in Coldwater, Michigan, out of town. He spent some money on the team made Ernie Nevers the coach uh, eventually. But uh, apparently he was trying to get out of it, and Hallis told Mr. Bidwell that the team was available. At that time, Bidwell, I think, I believe, was uh, an officer of the Bears as well as a part owner. 
So he had to divest himself of that. But he was a mighty Bears fan. In fact, one of the stories goes that when the Bears and Cardinals uh, met right after Bidwell took over the team in 32 or 33, the Cardinals led the entire game. The Bears came back and won it in the last few minutes, and, and Bidwell was heard to say, whew, that was close, thinking he was still an officer of the Bears. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was a, a, a tremendous force for the Cardinals. He built that championship team. He really went after Charlie Trippi when Trippi could have signed a major baseball contract or with this uh, other league that was starting up in the late 40s. And he really went after Trippi and signed him to the contract no one had ever seen before then, $100,000. Um, he was also active in other sports. He started a women's uh, professional uh, softball team in Chicago and really put some effort behind it. He was, of course, involved with horse racing and dog racing in Chicago. Um, different events. He was a partner with George Hallis in a professional basketball team. So his family, uh, even though he passed away in April of 47, too soon to see his Tim win the championship. Uh, it stayed in the family until the current day. And speaking of the the same family, and there's a, a late owner who just passed away, Bill. Is that his son? Yes, that would be his son. And um, when I did my book on the Cardinals, he was such a tremendous help. He spent countless hours with me. He's one of those people that has kind of an encyclopedia memory and Enjoyed talking about the old days in Chicago when he lived there and went to St. Ignatius High School. And, uh, of course, the Cardinals players that he just really loved throughout the year. So he, he was a huge help. So, I mean, being that he was there still when it was in Chicago, and we know they didn't have a whole lot of success other than, you know, they made it to the Super Bowl as Arizona. Why did they move from Chicago and when did they move from Chicago? In March of 1960, the Cardinals moved to St. Louis, and the reason was, and Mr. Bidwell told me this is that for TV, that there was a thing called a blackout at the time, and Chicago was the only metropolitan area that shared pro football teams. So if one of the teams was playing on the road or at home, the other team, uh, that game would, would be blacked out, so their fans could not watch it if the other team was on. And so it was hurting in the television revenue for both teams. Those who might be skeptical of that reason think George Hellis had a lot to do with it. Uh, the Cardinals were paid $500,000 to help them with their moving expenses to St. Louis. We also have heard that with the new AFL starting that the NFL did not want the AFL in St. Louis. So that was reason for the Cardinals to move down to St. Louis. In 1959, the team's last in Chicago, they played at Soldier Field, where the Bears play now, although back then it was kind of a, a, a crumbling edifice, uh, a lot bigger than it is now. Sat over 100,000 people, and of course the crowds were very, very small. In fact, the Cardinals played two of their home games in Minneapolis that year uh, in an effort to attract some type of attendance. So they weren't drawing well at Comiskey Park or at Soldier Field. So I guess the handwriting was on the wall. Uh, there's lots of reasons why we think maybe they should have stayed in Chicago. Chicago certainly could have supported two teams as it does two baseball teams. But they moved to in 1960 uh, to St. Louis and then in the 80s moved out to Arizona, where at first they played at the University Stadium where the fans were grilled in the hot sun in the uh, in the fall. And then finally, uh, the resurgence began when they got their own football stadium out in Glendale, Arizona, on the west side of Phoenix. 
Did he share any insights as to why they moved to Arizona from St. Louis? The the he did not, but the things I've read was that the uh, city promised him a stadium eventually. I, I believe I also read that St. Louis had promised them a stadium, and that never never in fact happened. So uh, after a couple of false starts down in Arizona, they the team finally got its own stadium. I wonder how long did it take the Rams to get into St. Louis after the Cardinals left? Oh, that I don't know the exact uh, the exact date, but. Yeah, I don't think it was that that farther. The Rams did move a lot from Cleveland to Los Angeles to St. Louis, back to Los Angeles. So, um, yeah, they. Um, I know. I know. Having friends and relatives in the St. Louis area, they're not very happy with the Rams right now. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, would imagine so. Especially last year, they end up going to the Super Bowl. I mean, they lose, but uh, oh. yeah, leaving like that. Now, I'm a Detroit Lions fan, so I've never felt my team leaving unfortunately i've also never felt my team win so uh, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic to go about and speaking of not having the greatest success as that goes um do you have any idea or inklings as to why you believe this is the longest professional organization without a championship Ooh, that's a great question you think about how they were in the super bowl 10 years ago that last Score by Pittsburgh was a perfect toss if it had been off just a little bit with the Cardinals that won the Super Bowl. But it's difficult to win, uh, as you know. And in the 40s and the 50s, the the Cardinals, excuse me, in the 50s were really disorganized. I, I think in terms of management, the the Bidwell sons were not fully involved. There's a guy named Walter Wolfner, not a football guy from accounts that I've I've studied in the past. They tried all sorts of things to be competitive in the 50s, including hiring Curly Lambeau, the old Packers coach, as their head coach in, in 50 and 51. He didn't work out too well. I guess there was a lot of internal disagreements, bad drafts, strange trades. They traded Ollie Matson for nine individuals who really didn't pan out, never really got any traction that last decade in Chicago. And St. Louis, I haven't looked at as closely as I have at Chicago. So came close a few times to being competitive. So eh, I, I don't know if I can I can pin it on. People say, oh, management did this or management did that. But sometimes it, it all comes down to players. Well, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it just it's always maddening as a Lions fan or I'm sure a Cardinals fan as well when you see the Patriots winning so much, yet you haven't even won a Super Bowl, let alone a championship game since the 47 season. So, Yes. I guess kind of wrapping up the whole Cardinals conversation throughout all of your research, experiences, maybe even talking to players, what would be the, like, the most unique thing that you found, like the one golden diamond knowledge nugget? Finding that first game was the the big one for me, but my experiences, especially when I was first starting the research, was the players that played in the 40s, these strong and very gentle men uh, who went to war and gave up their careers, gave up their families, and then came back and, and won a championship, but they were so down to earth. I mean, every single one of them, whatever you needed, if you wanted to talk, they'd provide stuff, open up their scrapbooks, open up their families. But I even met a guy named Mats Tonelli, and you may have heard of Mario Mats Tonelli. He was a 
fullback for Notre Dame. And in 1940, when those winds of war were starting together, Motts decided he was with the Cardinals by then uh, to volunteer for the service. And apparently at the time that you could do one year and then you'd be out. Um, and so he went in the service and he was assigned over in the Philippines. And unfortunately for Mats, he was there the week after Pearl Harbor when the Japanese invaded the Philippines. And his story is very heroic, very sad, but also very happy because he spent four years in Japanese prison camps and he was on the Bataan Death March where they marched these soldiers 60 some miles without bread or, or without food or water. And they survived by putting their shirts out at night and collecting dew and then kind of soaking up that dew to as they're drinking water. And he survived that and uh, came back to the Cardinals. And when he was in the hospital in Chicago in the summer of 1945, when the war ended, he had gone from 210 pounds to about 80 pounds. And he said he had a most welcome visitor, Mr. Bidwell, who we've been talking about, uh, came up to his hospital and see how he was doing. Then he said, you know, Mats, when you uh, entered the war, you had just signed a contract with the Cardinals. We expect you to honor that contract. And Mats said, well, I'm in no shape. And he said, no, we want you on that field this year. And sure enough, late in the season, he was strong enough to get on the field. In a very generous moment, the Cardinals put him on the field against the Packers. And Don Hudson was against him because Mats was playing defensive back and said, don't worry, kid, we'll take care of you. And Mats was able to play. And because of that, because of the rules at the time, he got pension qualifications for the four years that he served in the war because he played football before and after the war. And he said he will always be grateful to the Bidwell family. And that's some of these things we hear about the family that aren't publicized, what they do for the players and for various charities, which I've been impressed with. So from Mazzinelli to the wonderful players to finding that first game like the Titanic, those are kind of the gems that I can look back and say, wow, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it all started with finding out that your dad was drafted by the Cardinals. Yes, yes, and that $110 a game contract he signed. And make sure you bring your own shoes and shoulder pads, the coaches told him. <laughs> yeah, different than nowadays, that's for sure. <laughs> so he never talked about it your entire childhood. No, he never did. He, he you know, I'd hear things and we'd meet uh, different players and he seemed to know everybody in his coaching career. And, and say someone like Charlie Trippy would sign up, show up at our house because he was going to speak at one of my dad's banquets or uh, Patty Driscoll then with the Bears. And he just seemed to know everybody. But he never really talked about it, and you know, it was part of his life, and, and he was past it and got into coaching and teaching, and he loved that. And that actually led to uh, another book that uh, we just came out, uh, which talks about his football coaching at Morgan Park Military Academy in Chicago. And that, that book's called uh, Cadets, Legends, and Heroes, uh, about the football program through the years at that school, which has uh, four different college uh, Hall of Famers that are, are from that school. From the time frame that he was a coach or just throughout the entire history of the school? Throughout the entire, yeah. They started in 1893 or four with football, and then the school actually gave it up in 1978. But Amos Alonzo Stagg, who we know is the University of Chicago coach, was also the coach at the Military Academy because that was a sister school. He used it almost as a, 
a farm club for the University of Chicago, which was a powerful team at the time and national champions, I think once or twice under Stagg. And Wallace Wade, who has the stadium at Duke named after him, he played at Morgan Park Military Academy. And of course, we had uh, Mr. Harper from Notre Dame, who uh, coached Newt Rockney and then turned reins over to Newt Rockney. He was also a player in the early days at Morgan Park Military Academy. So a lot of fun stories there as well as we look back in the history of football, except this time on a high school level instead of a professional level. Yeah, and I'll definitely put links to this book in the show notes for anyone that's interested in it, as well as uh, links to your other book, the Cardinals one. The uh, Something about that, though, did you say before it was out of print? Yeah, the book is out of print for new copies. They used copies are available on Amazon. We were lucky enough a few years ago to get mentioned in Sports Illustrated with the book, and it seemed to really help sales. And we're hopeful that the publisher might release another version of it uh, in the next year or so because people still are interested in the history of the Cardinals. Well, maybe this can be one step closer to helping that get released because I'm sure that we'd all like to hear and listen to the full in-depth story that is the Chicago Cardinals and the longest professional football franchise out there. And other than the Detroit Lions, I do hope that they win the Super Bowl soon. <laughs> oh, we thank you for that. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of that, uh, are you, being that you're a Cardinals fan, are you a Chicago Bears fan now, being from Chicago, or how's that work? Yeah, I have to kind of split my loyalties here. As my wife says, when the Bears run, I'm not fit to be in a room with other human beings. I get a very emotional. Uh, with the Cardinals, uh, with the distance, I still follow every game and, of course, love their history. And, uh, Hope that they win every game as well. When the Bears and the Cardinals play, I kind of lead towards the Cardinals, though. And that doesn't happen too often anymore. <laughs> right, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, that's something that you have two uh, teams that started together, separated, but at the same time, they'll always be remembered as the only two remaining teams from the founding of the NFL. That's correct, yes. And from the Decatur Staley's and the Racine Cardinals, we have two very valuable and uh, very strong football franchises today. And uh, before I kind of wrap this up earlier, we talked about the Professional Researchers Association. And are you going to be speaking at the convention next year in Canton, Ohio? Yes, I was honored to um, be asked to talk at, in Canton next June. The Professional Football Researchers Association meets every other year and has really a wonderful uh, conference, uh, a couple, three days. Two years ago, we, we met at Lambeau Field, which is really neat. Uh, last year, we were in Buffalo, and so it kind of focused on, on those teams. And next year in Canton in June, uh, it'll focus on the uh, early days of the NFL. We'll be meeting, I believe, right at the Hall of Fame, which everyone's really excited about and looking forward to. So, yes, I'll be talking about the uh, early days of the NFL on a panel, I believe, with some, some other folks, and we're really looking forward to that. And is that open to the public if I were to put a link on the show notes for anybody? It is, yeah. Um, people can attend. The The admission price is a little higher than it is for a member. But uh, one thing about the PFRA is if you decide to become a member, then you'd get that member price right away. And, and the rates to become a member are very reasonable. I hope I'm not wrong, but I think it's $35 a year in that range, which is, is very reasonable. And what you get, there's a newsletter comes out every other month. 
and the website has a forum where people are always uh, tackling interesting topics on the history of pro football. So it's not always going way back to where I find myself in 1899, but uh, more recently, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's all part of the NFL's history, and, and people are interested in that. And there's members from all over all over the world that belong to it. So it's something I highly recommend. Uh, the group also publishes books now. In fact, I'm helping out with a little book on the Los Angeles Rams of 1951. We talked about the Rams a moment ago, and uh, that'll be out in 2021, I believe. The last uh, one came out about the Green Bay Packers recently and one on the Baltimore Colts from certain years. So it's um, it's it's fun, interesting, and uh, always enjoyable to attend one of those conferences. Well, I'll definitely put links to that in the show notes as well. and. Anywhere else that you want anybody to find you or take a look at any of your information? We do have a Facebook site, and just look under Chicago Cards, and we we cover a lot of the topics we did tonight, some obscure things. Today, we're, we're, we're going to have a post on there of what we started this program off with, the very first game the Cardinals ever played from 1899. Uh, we're going to start listing the top 100 players in the Chicago Cardinals history. And I shouldn't use the word top, but 100 most maybe memorable names in, in the history of the team when they're in Chicago. And also we're going to be tracking the both the 1899 and 1919 seasons. When you have the NFL's oldest team, it's, it's fun to go back and see uh, how these games were described and how the results were and one of the significant changes in football was back in the early days, teams would often punt the ball right back on first down, or if they were scored upon, they would also do the kickoff. They had their choice, trying to get better field position in the days before passing. So we try and find some obscure things there. And then finally, we have a Twitter account. Uh, it's called at Cards Chicago, where sometimes we'll post old newspaper ads from the games or links to other articles about the team or about the NFL. Uh, again, an opportunity to, to publish stuff that I find interesting or we find interesting that other people might enjoy as well. So Facebook and Twitter are two more sources. Well, we can go ahead and put that in the show notes as well, so make it easier for everyone. And Which, by the way, you can get to the show notes through your podcast player or you can head to thefootballhistorydude.com. And one last question for you, Joe, before we scoot on out of here. Yes. If I were to give you the keys to my DeLorean and you could go back in any point in Chicago Cardinals history and you could actually be there to witness, what moment are you going to be present for? I think I would like to be in the locker room at halftime of the 1947 championship game and talk about here Jimmy Councilman instruct his team on how to play in gym shoes and how to contain these great running backs from Philadelphia who also were changing into gym shoes at the time as well. I think that'd be uh, neat to hear what kind of inspiration, because from everything I've read about Jimmy Councilman, he was extraordinary in terms of motivating players and, and getting them to play back then. So that that would be fun, I think, to go back to that day in 1947 when the Cardinals were facing the Eagles for their NFL championship. What a great way to end the show, because the last championship, let's leave it on a high note, and let's go ahead and zing on out of here. Great. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking about the Cardinals and uh, 
Look forward to if anyone ever wants to chat, get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, boy. That sure was a good one. And I want to thank Joe again for coming on the show and taking time out of his day to share with you and me about his extensive knowledge about the Chicago Cardinals and gridiron knowledge nuggets that he shared about the history of the NFL's oldest franchise. And I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, why don't you want to go over to his bio on the page, his website? You can learn more about Joe, purchase his books, or anything else about him on the dedicated page over at thefootballhistorydude.com slash Joe Ziemba. That's Joe Z-I-E-M-B-A. And also, man, if you're down with this show and you like learning about the history of the NFL, I bet you know somebody that would like to learn it too. Why don't you share this episode with a football geek such as yourself and go ahead and send them to the website because we have ourselves another guest riding shotgun with us next week. His name is Joe Steffenhagen. He takes the keys of this DeLorean, takes us back to a little town in the middle of upstate New York to talk about another original team called the Rochester Jeffersons. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.